Well, hey, get your Bibles out, and let's go to the Word first before we come into the worship. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I would really encourage you is, how did you process what we just did? Uh, Was that comfortable for you? Was that uncomfortable? Was it weird? Um, Don't shake that loose, all right? Um, I went to physical therapy for my shoulder uh, this week, and... uh, the girl that worked on my shoulder, she I called her Lord of the Dungeon because it was torture what they did to me. And she said, don't worry, the pain will bring healing. I said, right, that's something that's really cute to say when I'm screaming in there, you know. But let the uncomfortableness of what you just experienced maybe be the nudging of God's spirit in you to bring you a fuller revelation of what he's doing. Does that make sense? Because I think a lot of us don't live with the reality as Christians that the Holy Spirit is ever-present and that he's ever-working. And if he's ever-present and he's ever-working, then what does that feel like? What is that like when the Holy Spirit is leading me? Is that a common occurrence in your life? And if you say, no, that's not a common occurrence, then I would say to you as a believer, it is a common occurrence, but you've stopped seeing what the Lord is doing. And so we start experiencing the Holy Spirit as something that's uncomfortable and unusual and something we're trying to shake loose rather than recognizing and seeing it as something we need to follow. Okay, that's completely different than what we're going to talk about this morning. But let that kind of sink in. Because we're going to, I'm going to ask you the first of four questions today that I'd like you to consider and process and meditate on for this new year and how you will live your life and how you'll live your life with the Lord. And let me say something about questions before we begin, because questions are kind of a funny thing. Because when a question is asked, we feel a need to do what? To answer. Question almost requires and demands an answer. And when we seek to answer questions, sometimes we see questions as a way to succeed rather than a way to receive. And what I mean by that is all of us were kind of raised on this idea that you're going to be tested, that you're going to be evaluated, that your life is going to be measured by how well you handle questions. Because I learned that in first grade. If I can handle the questions correctly, I get an A. If I handle them poorly, I get a B. No, for me, you know, an F. So, you know, it's how we handle questions. And what's weird about the way we're taught, even as children, is that the questions are an opportunity for me to see whether I know what is right or what's wrong, or what's correct. Like, for example, what year did Columbus discover America? 1492. Some of y'all are so good because you remembered what? He sailed the ocean blue. For the rest of you that didn't go to school, what we said was Columbus discovered America in 1492, sailed the ocean blue. But here's the interesting thing is that we know the answer to that question, but we may not be able to tell you the real answer. Why did he discover America in 1492? In other words, what I'm saying is that we have a tendency in our culture to rush to answer almost every question with the word how. How do you do it? Boy, that's awful, man. What do I need to do? Is it the... Oh, oh, it's the board. Okay, all right. 
I want to talk a little bit about questions before I ask you the question, okay? And I'm drawing a lot of my information today uh, in this intro is from Peter Block's book, The Answer to How, or The Answer to How is Yes. Have any of y'all ever read this book? That's great, because it's going to make me look brilliant. It's really a good book because uh, he says that the tragedy of the way that we approach most questions is that we try to answer most questions with how, or how do we do that, or how do we accomplish that. And the, the problem with answering a question with how is that we begin to believe, like, for example, how do you do that, that all we lack is just a little bit of information. I can answer this if I have just a little bit more information. Or maybe the solution to the answer to this question is just right around the corner. Or we ask the question and then we answer it with how long will it take for us to solve this problem? Or how long will it take for us to accomplish this? If we got a question in our lives, how long is it going to take for me to come up with the answer to that? And if it takes too long, the answer is probably no. Or the questions in your life, you may ask yourself, how much is this going to cost? And when I ask that question, then I'm really saying is that if the price is too high, there's probably going to be a big problem with answering this question. Or how would we measure it? How are we going to measure the results of this? Meaning, if I can measure it, therefore it's valid. Now, what I'm saying here is all the questions that we face in our lives, questions about your relationships with other people, questions about yourself, questions about your career, questions about how you handle money, questions about your own sexuality, questions about what you're going to do tomorrow or what you're going to do this afternoon or how you're going to process certain problems that you're struggling with or what you're going to do with the family that you just left from the holidays. If we answer those questions with how do we do it, how long will it take, how much will it cost, how will I measure it, then we run a great risk. Because how is a great question, right? And it's a legitimate question. But in our culture, we tend to push the how answer to the front of the line. And when we push the how question to the front of the line, then it changes the answers that we're looking for. For example, let me quote from you from Peter Blocks. He said, how calls us to yield too easily to what is doable and practical and popular. In the process, we have sacrificed the pursuit of what is in our hearts. We find ourselves giving in to our doubts and settling for what we know how to do or can soon learn how to do instead of pursuing what most matters to us and living in the adventure and the anxiety that this requires. Did you hear that? Getting to what matters most. And you know, that's such a foreign concept or a foreign question for some of us, especially when we have no idea how to answer the question, what matters to us? When I ask you, what do you want? And you go, I'm so busy trying to figure out how to do life, I don't even know how to tell you what I want. I was with a friend the other day, and I was talking about some of the dreams that I feel like the Lord has given me. And they looked at me, and they said, is there something wrong with me? Because I don't have any dreams. How keeps us from the pain of not knowing? We busy ourselves so much with trying to answer the question how, because when we're so busy, we don't have time to be still and awkward like we started this service and realize that maybe you have no idea what you want. You have no idea what your dreams are. 
You have no idea what your purpose is. You have no idea what you're doing here. How gets me so busy and success gets me so driven and accomplishments gives me so much music in my ear that I never have time to stop and hear my own heart. When I put down the how question, the why question begins to sing. Why do this? Does it matter? Who are we? What is our purpose? The why opens a whole box of vague, unmeasurable questions. And this can be terrifying. I'm promising you it is. Listen to Block. He said, we might put aside our wish for safety and instead view our lives as perfect, purpose-filled experiment whose intention is more for learning than for achieving and more for relationships than for power, speed, or efficiency. See, how demands a solution. It demands a methodology. It demands a tool. And let me ask you a question. Is that what you are? Is that the sum purpose of your existence is for you to become more efficient? Is that what we are? Are we tools? Well, some of you are. I didn't say that, all right? Austin mouthed it to me right up here. I could tell him. Yeah, you all thought it. Listen to Block again. He said, the question declares that we as a culture and I as a human, being as fundamentally, as a human, beings are fundamentally about getting things done. I butchered that quote. Let me try it again. The question declares that we as a culture and I as a human being are fundamentally about getting things done. We become what we seek, a tool. We reduce ourselves to being primarily pragmatic and utilitarian. See, what's crazy about this is that we've tried it and we know that life doesn't work that way. Because in fact, we've been collecting answers to the questions since the beginning of time, haven't we? Well, why are we still collecting answers? Haven't we collected enough answers already? Don't we have the answer now? Why is it that even today in 2011, we're still on the treadmill of asking the same question that was asked 300 years ago? How do we do it? How do we do it? How do we do it? Don't we uh, just think maybe that question is unanswerable? We keep going faster. We seek more efficiency. We want more success. We want guaranteed success. And here, wow, this is the peak of Mount Everest. We want control. Tell me how to do it. I'll do it, and I'll be in control. Help me identify what my problem is. And once I identify it, then I can decide what the solution is for that problem. And then I can fix it because I'm in control. I can do it. I just need to know what it is that I need to do. And fix that. But control is really an illusion, isn't it? It's an illusion that we use to trick ourselves so that we won't be afraid. Because it's terrifying to think that everything is out of control, including you and me. Block again. The choice to worry about why we are doing something more than how we do something is risky business. It is risky for us as individuals and for society. Choosing to act on what matters is the choice to live a passionate existence, which is anything but controlled and predictable. (laughs) Wow. 
So all that build up to tell you that I'm about to ask you a question. And I want to warn you not to answer the question with how. But I want to bypass the question of how, this big brick wall that we put up to protect our hearts and go straight to the heart. And here's the question, the first question I'd like for you to wrestle with in 2011. Do you have an honest view of yourself? Or another way to ask it is, will you look at yourself with honesty this year? It's a funny thing, this word honesty, that we see ourselves for what we really are. This year, I was at lunch with a friend, and we were standing uh, by the big glass window at the front of the restaurant and uh, having lunch, and there's a big walkway out there. And it was funny because uh, I noticed as we were eating lunch is that every girl that walked past the window uh, would look straight at me and start smiling, kind of pause a little bit and keep going. I don't know why you find that funny. I looked at my friends and said, of course. What do you expect? I mean, it wasn't just one. It was like every woman that walked past that window just could not help but stop and make eye contact with me and kind of smile. Thank you, Lord. There's one gift to women in this world. So we pay our bill, and I walk outside the restaurant to say goodbye to him and look back through the window and realize the way the sun was hitting the glass on the window had turned it into a mirror, and you couldn't see through the window. All they could see was themselves as they were walking by. That was a little too much honesty for my ego at that moment, right? I like the idea that everybody found me irresistible, you know, with food stuck between my teeth. It was still... But in reality, they were fascinated with themselves. It wasn't me at all. And see, that's the funny thing about honesty, you know? Because when we stand in front of the mirror of true honesty, the how question screams at us with a scream that's so loud that we can almost not bear it. How do I change? How do I get better? How do I make it work? How do I become more committed? How do I make more resolutions? How to become more resolved? How do I get away from hopelessness? How do I get away from my depression? How do I get away from my quiet desperation of resolve that I will do anything to change everything? Isn't it true? When we stand in front of the honest mirror and we look at ourselves honestly, doesn't the scream of how do I make that work So let's go to Peter, and let's look at his life. John chapter 1, or John chapter 21. And let me tell you what's going on here. Peter, a few chapters earlier, we're going to start in verse 15. So if you have the page number from the House Bible, shout it out. John 21, verse 15. Anybody got a page number? 755. Thank you, Russ. Russ and his team are leaving for the Ukraine in about two hours. Continue to pray for them as they take off over there as representatives of our community to minister to kids. So Peter, a few chapters earlier at the Last Supper, 
and before Jesus was betrayed, was telling Jesus how devoted he was to him. And he was saying to Jesus, as Jesus was talking about, I must die, but when I rise again, I'll bring newness of life. Peter said, you're not going to die. I'm not going to let it happen. Matter of fact, I will die with a sword in my hand to keep you from dying. And Jesus just kind of listened to this, and, and he said, you know, Peter, you sound so bold and strong, but guess what? You're going to betray me, not just once, but three times before the sun comes up tomorrow. And Peter's like, never. There's no way you were wrong. But if you've been around church long enough and you've been here, you know that Peter blew it. Not only did he, this bold guy with a sword, who said, I will take out anybody who tries to touch my Jesus. You know, and we still hear these kind of commitments, like even worship songs, you know. I will scale every mountain. I'll go to the deepest ocean. You know, I give all of me to you. I always chuckle when I hear those worship songs because, I mean, they sound so grand, but they sound just like Peter, don't they? I promise from this point on, I will commit everything to you until I get in my car and driving out of here and a guy cuts me off in traffic. To the devil, you know? <laughs> I'm sure that's what y'all say, isn't it? Oh, you go to the devil. <laughs> that's what I say. So can you imagine making the largest boast you've ever made to the person that has had the most impact on your life, making vows of friendship and devotion that you swear you will never break, and then breaking them at the lightest threat. Because it wasn't that an army came against Peter. It was things like a slave girl goes, aren't you with Jesus? A slave girl. And Jesus denied him. Here's what's crazy is that uh, Peter is devastated He understands that Jesus was right after all. And he goes back to the only thing he knows how to do, and that is to be a fisherman. And so he goes out on the boat with his buddies to go back to fishing because this Jesus thing, this whole journey of the new kingdom, well, that was good for a while. Verse 15. Because Jesus shows up on the shore. I gotta give you a little bit more backstory. And they'd been fishing all night. Jesus said, hey, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. They did it. The nets were about to bust. Peter realized it was Jesus. And Peter, without take, you know, changing clothes, jumps off the front of the boat and starts swimming to shore. It's him. It's him. And this desperation. And Jesus is on the shore cooking him fish. Okay, I'm not going to say the joke that just came to my mind. But he sits down with Peter. And listen in verse 15. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Now, let me just stop you there just for a minute because he's going to ask him three questions and he starts each of them by saying, Simon, son of John. Who calls you by your full name? Is there anybody in your life that calls you by your like first, middle, and last name? And when they do that, does that get your attention? I can tell you when somebody looks at me and goes, Randall Haldron? Uh, yeah. You see what Jesus is doing? He is tapping into the most intimate part of Peter. And he's saying, look at me. Look at me. What I'm about to ask you is going to shape the rest of your life. And he says, do you truly love me more than these? Because that was his boast. That he he loved Jesus more than anybody. And Jesus said, really? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. 
Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Jesus said, feed my sheep. And I tell you the truth. When you were young, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Let's just take a second, and I want to just pick this apart, and then we're going to go into a time of worship and let you meditate on what the Lord has for you in this. But we have to go to the original language to understand what was going on. Because Jesus said to Peter, he said the first question, he says, Peter, uh, do you agape me? And it's the Greek word that's used throughout the New Testament to really talk about the supernatural love of God. Matter of fact, in 1 John, where it says God is love, it says God is agape. And it's the word that talks about the unconditional, supernatural, powerful love that God has that he gives to us or defines himself by. And so Jesus is looking at Peter and he goes, hey, Peter, do you agape me? When Peter answered back, he said, Lord, you know that I phileo you. The word phileo there is the Greek word for love that talks about friendship. It talks about being pals. It talks about being buddies. And Peter is responding to Jesus' question about agape with an answer that's called phileo. Jesus is saying, do you love me more than anyone else? And Peter goes, you know we're friends. So Jesus asked him again in verse uh, 16, Peter, do you agape me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I phileo you. All the boast is gone now. All that arrogant bravado of, you know, I'll climb every mountain, the deepest sea, you know, Aerosmith, all that stuff is gone now because Peter is being honest with Jesus. I don't know. You're asking me, do I love you more than everybody else? And I'm telling you, I am a failure. I have blown it. I did the very thing that I swore to you I would never do. I don't know. And then Jesus says to him the third time, and this is crazy, Peter, do you phileo me? Do you even call me your friend? And all Peter could say was, you know all things. What's going on there? I think what's going on there is that Jesus is trying to awaken the heart of Peter as he's trying to awaken our hearts this morning. What I mean that is he's trying to call Peter to his true self. He's trying to call Peter, Peter, do you honestly see yourself? Do you stand in the mirror and see yourself? In the wake of all of Peter's failures, he was revealing something, but I don't think it's what you think he was revealing. Let me tell you what he was revealing. Because we're closing the chapter in 2010, I get to read some of my favorite quotes from 2010. Here's one I read a couple of months ago by Gerald May in his book, The Awakened Heart. There's a desire within each of us in the deep center of ourselves that we call our heart. We were born with it. It is never completely satisfied and it never dies. We are often unaware of it, 
but it is always awake. It is the human desire for love. Every person on this earth yearns to love, to be loved, to know love. Our one true identity, our reason for being is to be found in this desire. And the heat is coming. Do you see what's going on here? It was Jesus who came to Peter. It was Jesus who cooked. It was Jesus that revealed himself even when Peter was out trying to do the only thing he knew how to do but was failing at it because they weren't catching any fish. And Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side. What was he revealing? How much Jesus loved Peter. You see that? Peter had run away because he had failed. Jesus was running after him because he loved him. Larry Crabb says it this way in his book, Soul Talk. We cannot experience the love and joy of real life until we connect to another at the level of our soul. We cannot know the freedom to be who we truly are until we yield who we really are to another and experience, get this, and we experience that person's acceptance. And Jesus was coming to Peter and saying, I see you, and you know I see you. Dude, I got your number, and you know exactly what I see, and I love you. I completely accept you. Do you know how hard that is to receive? If, if you don't know how hard that is to receive, you have a very small view of how much you're like Peter. Because the bigger your view of your understanding of where we have lived a whole life of saying, things I will never do, and then we do it are things that I swear I'll always do and then we never do them. Until we see that, it's hard for us to understand when Jesus comes to us and says, I see you and I love you, how powerful that is. Because listen to what he said to Peter, feed my sheep. What is more powerful when someone comes and put their arm around your shoulder and says, hey, come on and go with us. See, love isn't blind. True love sees 2020, but true love accepts even though it sees. Do you have an honest view of yourself? In light of your inconsistence, your failures, your beauties and your flaws, do you see because of what Christ did on the cross and through the power of his resurrection and through that and that alone, through the blood of our Savior, Jesus agapes you. When you look in the mirror and you see yourself honestly, is the most honest thing you see is, I am loved. I am profoundly loved. See, it's only when we dance in the waterfall of God's love for us through his son, Jesus Christ, it's only when we tune our hearts to the song of that love, oh, it's only then that a couple things begin to happen. And let me give you three of them in three minutes, and then I'm through. The first thing is that we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with others. What I mean by that is in 2011, the definition of my life is I plant a flag that says I quit. I quit. I quit needing to hide from other people because I'm loved. 
Of course I've blown it. Of course I'm imperfect. Of course I'm inconsistent. I don't need to hide that from you because I'm loved. I quit needing to live in fear. I don't need to live in fear anymore. The scripture says perfect love casts out all fear. It doesn't mean that I don't face fear, that I don't struggle with fear, that fear's not all around me, but I'm not living in it because I'm loved. I quit defending when I'm called out on something. Why? Because there's nothing to defend anymore. Because of course I'm guilty of stuff. Of course. You know, if I'm honest, the stuff that you call me out on, that's nothing. You ought to see the stuff that you don't see that you should be calling me out on. But even in that, I'm comfortable because I'm loved. You see the power of letting ourselves see ourselves as those that are loved? And let me get you this, and this is a whole other sermon series, but grab a hold of this. I am not only forgiven because of what Christ did on the cross and through the power of his resurrection, but I, in that forgiveness, I am free to forgive myself. I am free not to live in guilt and shame anymore. And I don't know about you, but you lift guilt and shame. I mean, guilt and shame are like those big iron balls you see in old cartoons strapped to our ankles and we're trying to run. Unlock those suckers and see how fast you go. Some of you are hearing that and you're going, ah, it just sounds good, but no way. Because you don't see yourself as loved. Will you take an honest view of yourself? The second thing, or the third thing, the first thing is we get to live better. The second thing is we get to treat ourselves with compassion by allowing ourselves to live as forgiveness, forgiven and free. But the third thing is that we get to live in love. In other words, now we can tackle the how question. Because now how, in light of love, now has a whole new color to it, doesn't it? Indulge me just for a second. Here's Gerald May once again. There are three meanings of bearing love, to endure it, to carry it, and to bring it forth. In the first, we are meant to grow in our capacity to endure, endure love's beauty and pain. If you've been around for a while, if you've been married for more than five years, you know what that means. Endures love's beauty and pain. In the second, we are meant to carry love and spread it around as children carry laughter and measles. In the third, we are meant to bring new love into the world, to be birthers of love. Jesus calls us streams of living water. You hear that? When we are loved, when we see ourselves as loved, when we embrace the power that we are profoundly agape by God, do you know what allows us to do? We get to point out that spray like a super water soaker. Ephesians 3. I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you have an honest view of yourself? We're about to go into this time. I've said this before, but let me say it again. When I marry people which I love to do. It's just a fun thing to do. Uh, I can't get away from this habit. I'm hooked on this. But you know that moment when the bride appears at the back of the chapel and everybody, I tell everybody to stand up because I got that power. You know, that robe gives you that power. Uh, I very seldom have ever watched the bride coming down the aisle. I always watch the groom. And you know why? It's because I want to see the bride. 
Let me explain. She will never be more beautiful and is never more beautiful than she is in his face at that moment. Because he is taken by her. At that moment, he would make any vow I would ask him to make. I could tell him, you've got to swim to the moon, and he would swear he would do it. Because he, the beauty of the bride, you know, the gown, the moment, everything, that's like an arrow that's just shooting right through his heart. He is so helpless at that moment. But she is never more beautiful than in the devotion and love that he has for her. That's what we're talking about this morning. Christ calls us his bride. And he says, set our eyes on his face because you will never be more beautiful than you are in his face. When we see the agape love he has for us, it defines us. It changes us. It empowers us. And it frees us, doesn't it? So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. We're about to go into song and we're about to go into time of you praying and hearing some readings, but here's what I want you to engage in, is answer the question. At the beginning of 2011, will you honestly see yourself this morning? All right. Let's pray. Lord, stir now. Move in us. We desire to see ourselves as your treasured possession. And so let us join, Father. Let us join in the dance. The dance that is dancing to the song that you're singing. The one that you're singing over us. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves... He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing.